0: My name is David, and uh, I, um, this is my home church. It's always a joy for me to come when I get an opportunity to teach here uh, in this church. I enjoy it very much. Um, I've been a pastor about 25 years and a church planter, and uh, now I, I coach pastors, and so I get to teach in a lot of different churches. But it's, uh, it's a lot of fun to uh, to be uh, able to teach where I uh, know and respect the the pastor as much as I do Pastor Matt and where it is my home church. So Plus, I know that he has many, many... Uh, uh, high-quality teachers here he could call on. So it is always a, a privilege and an honor and a joy for me to be here. And he asked me to, to teach today on Second Corinthians 9, where Paul talks about giving cheerfully. And so the title of the message today is, Why Give Cheerfully? I mean, let's face it, if the church needs money and you give it grumpily and we use the money, shouldn't that be enough? Why does it matter if you give cheerfully? If somebody's poor and you give them money and they're no longer poor, do they care if you were happy or not? They might not. Why give cheerfully? And I have subtitled it, The Happiest Man in the World. And we'll see who the happiest man in the world is in a little bit. I'll be honest, Matt's been talking and and is going to continue talking about giving, um, living generously. And just just to be really honest with you guys, That doesn't produce warm, fuzzy feelings in me. When I sit in the congregation and the pastor begins to talk about giving, it's very uncomfortable for me. It's not because I don't give, and it's not because I don't think he should talk about it. Both of those are true. I do give, and I do think he should talk about it. But for reasons I'll explain later, it's a conflict of emotions. It's not one of joy. There's a mixture. And so I tell you that now to say, if you're one of those people, that's okay. (laughs) All right? It's okay to feel that way, and I'll talk a little bit about why I feel that way a little bit later so you can understand, but, but I just want you to know that's okay. We're going to talk about it, and, and I don't expect you to sit there and pretend, look, this is an honest community. Jerome says it many, many weeks. Matt says it many weeks. It's an honest community, so it's okay to not uh, be jumping out of your chair that someone is possibly wanting you to give more of your time or money or uh, things. So that's all right. But I do want to approach this from a different angle for that reason. I was thinking about that a little bit and thinking about this verse, which we're going to read. And I want to kind of see, I just really want to answer that question. Why give cheerfully? And, and, and why don't we give cheerfully? And, and why does it matter, frankly, as long as we give? And, and there's a part of me, you know, I, I think Pastor Matt is really good and he would never do this, but you know, if the, if the goal and the need is, is to have enough money to build a building or, or to do the, the various things we need to do as a church... Who cares if you make people grumpy about it, you know? Who cares if you manipulate and coerce and compel them to give against their better wishes? At least you've got the money, right? Don't worry. That's not what we're going to do. But why not? Why not? Obviously, there's something more going on here than just the elements that you give. There must be something else at play here. There must be something else that God and Paul is concerned about. So what I want to do is I want to read a passage for you in 2 Corinthians 9. I'm just going to read it straight through. And then I'm going to tell you right off the bat what the point is. Sometimes when I teach, I like to hold suspense. You know, I like to make you guess where I'm going. I'm not going to do that tonight. I'm going to tell you what the point is right off the bat, and then we're going to spend the rest of the time just beating you over the head with that point until you are so joyful you can't stand it. All right? That's the goal tonight. (laughs) 2 Corinthians 9. There's no need for me to write to you about this service to the Lord's people. Just to set the context very briefly, Paul is writing to the Corinthians, and what he's writing about is that there are some some churches that need money in Jerusalem. They need food. They They need basic necessities in Jerusalem. And so Paul has written and traveled and spoken to many of the churches saying, hey, we need this. And so now he's following up with the Corinthian church. There's a lot of questions in here. There's a lot of things, including which is some of what Paul says here. Is he being a little bit sarcastic, given what we know about the Corinthian church? I don't know. We're not going to get into that. We're going to focus on one main point, but that's the context. He says, For I know your eagerness to help, and I have been boasting about it to the Macedonians, telling them that since last year, you and Achaia were ready to give, and your enthusiasm has stirred most of them to action. But I am sending the brothers in order that our boasting about you in the matter should not prove hollow, but that you may be ready as I said you would be. For if any Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to say anything about you, would be ashamed of having been so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to visit you in advance and finish the arrangements for the generous gift you had promised. Then it will be ready as a generous gift, not as one grudgingly given. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is what I want to focus on tonight. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I just want you to think about this for a moment because there's something weird that happens. And the weird thing that happens is this. If you're somebody who already feels guilty about not giving, or when someone talks to you about giving, you feel as if you're being manipulated into giving, or you feel like you're being compelled to give, or you feel like you're being coerced to give, when they read this verse, what you tend to think is not, oh, good, I don't have to be coerced, I'm just supposed to want to give. What you think is, oh, now I am compelled and forced and coerced into giving and pretending to be happy about it. And so we take this verse and it becomes not a less of a burden, but a greater burden. And I think the reason this happens is because in all honesty, the enemy is so good at his job of making God's commands seem burdensome. It's an amazing verse in 1 John which says that God's commands are not burdensome. It's hard to take that verse seriously sometimes because his commands so often feel burdensome. They often seem onerous and giving is one of those But I really think what we learn throughout Scripture is that it is because the enemy is so good at making the commands of God seem burdensome, enslaving, and entrapping, because it's easy to justify not going there if that's what they are. So if this verse is not in fact talking about a joy that actually is supposed to be part of healthy giving, an actual honest goodness joy, if instead this verse is simply saying to you, there's something wrong with you if you don't like to give, and so what we need you to do is give more and dig down into the willpower that you have and make yourself happy to do it. If you hear God as the stern and frustrated Father who says, you will give and you will like it, then you're missing the point of this verse. In all honesty, we could read this verse differently. Now, Matt knows when he steps away and gives me the pulpit, there's always a little risk. I'll let him clean up later if he needs. <laughs> but you could read this verse to say, do not give if you aren't cheerful about it. That really is what he says. Each one should give What you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly, not even reluctantly, or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, in fact, uh, the subtitle that I gave you at the beginning, The Happiest Man in the World, I thought about a different subtitle at first. I was going to make the subtitle simply be great. Now I not only feel guilty about not giving, but about giving grumpily. (laughs) I decided that wouldn't be, that was too long of a subtitle. But I do want you to think about the fact that what this verse is about, it's not a should. It's not a moral should. It's not a, a, a willpower should. It's not saying to you, you better give and you better work really hard to be happy about it. And better give a lot and really smile big when you do. That's not what it is. It's not a should in that sense. It's a should in the sense of this is what it's supposed to look like. There is supposed to be something about giving which is genuinely joyful, which makes you feel good, which you take delight in, which you love, which you embrace, which is awesome. And that doesn't mean if you don't feel it, you need to reach down with willpower and pretend you feel it, because that's not the same thing. Nobody ever said to you, pretend to enjoy a roller coaster. Well, maybe they did. I don't know what happens in your life, but but when there's something you enjoy, you enjoy it. It's not a should in a moral sense. And that's what he's saying here. It's fascinating how often Scripture tells us this, that there's something about giving which is, in fact, very, very joyful. This word cheerful, he says, God loves a cheerful giver. The root of the word is the same word that in English has become hilarious. Now, I don't think Paul meant hilarious because they didn't use it the same way we did. He didn't mean it should make you laugh, but... I think there is something about that that's worth sharing because it resonates with the emotion I think Paul wants. Think about when you are in the midst of something that just strikes you as completely hilarious. Not scornfully, cynically hilarious. I mean actually hilarious. Where you are giggling and you can't stop and you don't care that you look like a nut. And people around you aren't getting the joke, and they aren't giggling, and they're feeling awkward, but you don't care because you think this is the funniest thing ever that's ever happened, and you're bubbling over with joy, and you can't stop, and every time you catch your breath and stop, something triggers it again, and you just are overflowing with joy. This is great. This is fantastic. You feel so good when that happens. I think that's the kind of joy, that's the kind of cheer that Paul is talking about. When he talks about cheerful giving, that's what we should be looking for. And if that isn't what giving is for us, then we're on the wrong end of the verse. Paul says, don't give if it's not like this. Like I say, Matt can clean up later. But but that's what we should be looking at. You know, there's another verse. Paul does an interesting thing. Paul never spoke with Jesus when he walked the earth before his death. Paul spoke with Jesus after the resurrection. His first meeting with Jesus was after the resurrection, and he calls himself an apostle, abnormally born, sort of out of order, because he got personal one-on-one instruction with Jesus, but it was after the resurrection. And there are times that he tells us things that Jesus told him that we don't find in the Gospels. It's like Paul got an addendum that other people didn't even either didn't write about or didn't hear. And one of the things that Paul says that really stands out, he says that our Lord said, and we don't find this anywhere in the Gospels. Paul says, our Lord said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, here's the problem with that verse. It's that word blessed. See, when we hear the word blessed, that is a word we only hear in church. And it's worse if you say it with two syllables, blessed. (laughs) It is more blessed to give than to receive. And we think that means spiritual or good or right or proper, right? That is not what the word means. The word blessed means happy. That's what it means. The Sermon on the Mount, over and over, Jesus says, happy are these people and happy are these people. That's why it's so weird when he says, happy are the poor. Everybody goes, yeah, that's ridiculous. It doesn't mean there's some sort of weird spiritual blessing that has nothing to do with it. It literally means happy. It means angelically happy. It means outrageously happy. Jesus isn't saying it is better, it is more spiritual to give than to receive. We all know that. Jesus is actually saying you will be happier as a giver than a receiver. And that we're not so sure about. But That's what he says. When you say God bless you, you're not just saying may God give you spiritual things. We're saying I hope God makes you happy. It's wrong. It's not proper. It's not correct to say that Jesus want to, doesn't want us to be happy. It's not right to say God doesn't care about our happiness. He cares so deeply about our happiness, he keeps trying to tell us where it comes from. We just keep forgetting. And one of the places he tells us it comes from is from giving. It is happier to give than to receive. Wow, if that's not our experience, we're missing something. It's not a should. You don't dig down and say, I will be happy. Has that ever worked for you? You will be the one if it has. But there is something, there's some joy, there's something here that's just amazing, something about being happy, hilariously happy, outrageously happy, bubbling over, joyful, about giving. There's an emotional resonance. So my subtitle that I changed this to of the the happiest man in the world, to tell you who I was thinking about when I wrote that, there's an interesting thing that happens around this time of year. There's two parallel stories that we all live in around this time of year in the holidays. One of them is the one that we believe is real. We believe Jesus really existed, really came to earth, God in the flesh. Amazing, amazing, amazing. Of course, that's what we talk about. But there's another story that runs parallel around this time of year, and I don't think it's a bad story. It's a myth. As long as we know it's a myth, it's not a bad story at all. And it's fascinating because it's about this gentleman. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever seen a frowning Santa Claus? If you do, it's always a grandfatherly frown. You know he doesn't mean it. If I ask you to impersonate Santa, right? Just bear with me for a moment. If I said to you, on the count of three, I want to hear your best imitation of Santa Claus, all right? One, two, three. How weird is it that when I asked you to impersonate Santa, you all knew exactly that what I wanted you to do was laugh? Because Santa is known for being jolly, happy, cheerful, right? Always. He is the happiest man in the world. No question about it. And this despite the fact that he actually has the worst job you can imagine, you know what Christmas brings up two experiences for people either delight or dread and as someone who works in the retail world may I tell you that for many who work in retail it quite sincerely brings up dread because sometimes it's dreadful because you have these deadlines and you have these things you have to get done and you're trying to make other people happy you sometimes don't want to be happy and then sometimes you have to work on Christmas eve you know who works on christmas eve all night Santa. You know who has a deadline that's unbelievable? Santa. He has to give gifts to every single boy and girl in the world in one night. Talk about pressure. He has to make a list of all the boys and girls in the world, decide who's good and who's bad, and then he has to check it again. I don't know who made this requirement, but we know he has to do it. So he checks that list again. And then he has to go deliver all these things in one night. And does he get paid? Cookies and milk do not count. No, he doesn't get paid. He gets nothing for it. And who gives him a present? Again, cookies and milk do not count. You get an Xbox. He gets a chocolate chip cookie. And you say, but he only works one day a year. Au contraire, my friend. He's got a herd of reindeer that he has to care for 365 days of the year, an entire group of them, and they fly. How do you keep track of flying reindeer? And he's got numerous uncounted employees in the forms of elves who have to take sick leave and vacation, and they may not always be cheerful. In fact, every special I've seen, there's always at least one really grumpy elf And he has to care for them all through the year. And he has to make the toys. That's the worst job. And he's the happiest man in the world. Obviously, I don't believe Santa's real. (laughs) But I think it's interesting that even in our myths of culture, we perceive that the happiest man in the world must be the one who gives more than anybody else. Isn't that interesting? We understand intuitively deep down somehow that it is indeed better to give than receive. And Santa cornered the market. It's kind of awesome for him. He is the jolly man. So if there is supposed to be a joy like this, if there is supposed to be a a real cheer in our giving, what happens? What makes us a grumpy giver instead of a cheerful giver? So I want to walk through a few things that make me a grumpy giver instead of a cheerful giver and see if any of them resonate with you. All right? And these are things Paul points to in this passage. First thing he says is compulsion and coercion. He says nobody should give reluctantly, like they've been coerced into it or they've been compelled to do it against their will. Nobody should give that way, he says. But instead... Give what you've decided you want to give because God loves a cheerful giver. When I feel that I have to give, when I give and it wasn't a choice, but I felt like I had to do it, oh, I'll do it, but I'm never very happy about it. I may be even happy at the moment, but it either makes me resentful or proud. If I feel like I have to because I feel like no one else will do it, and if I don't do it, the world will fall apart, then it makes me proud. If I feel like I have to do it because otherwise I look bad or I look stupid or the other person will be mad at me or I'll let them down or I'm a bad person or I feel guilty and I feel like I don't have any choice but I have to give, then I feel resentful. Why is it easier to become resentful of serving your family members than it is when you do the same service for other people? Because sometimes you feel like you have to. You don't feel like you get to choose. See, I can choose. I can choose whether I want to buy you a Christmas gift or not. I don't get to choose that with my kids. (laughs) I kind of have to. (laughs) Well, not this year, kids. Just kidding. Um, Not true, not true. But there is this, this truth that when we feel coerced into giving, we may do it, but we don't feel joyful about it because it wasn't a choice. There was no power in it. There was no love in it. Do you understand that? There's no love in a compelled gift. And you know what else you need to know? People that manipulate you into loving them through your service or your gift or your money or your time, they do it because they don't know any other way to get the love. But can I tell you a secret? It never works. They never feel loved. When you manipulate someone into loving you, you know, you can tell when they didn't do it because they chose to. And you don't feel loved. It doesn't help. It doesn't feel that. Instead, What do you do instead? Paul says it in that same verse. He says, everyone should do what he has decided in his heart to do, to give what he has purposed to give. He uses the word purposed. Interestingly enough, this word appears nowhere else in the New Testament. It's like Paul went out of his way to find a word he didn't use frequently. He didn't know what was in the rest of the New Testament, but he went out of his way to find an unusual word, right? And he found a word which, which really means that you're going to make a decision, you're going to plan and make a purpose, and you're going to make a deliberate resolve to give. And it doesn't come from a half-regretted re- promise. It doesn't come from a, a resentful place of feeling you had to. It doesn't come from an emotion that, that flashes up and you promise something and then later wish you hadn't. It means there's a purposeful decision that I am going to give regardless of what other people say or do. That's what Paul says. Everyone should make a decision in their heart to give and not under compulsion because that will make you a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. Interesting thing about this, there's so much power in this. Even if someone is trying to manipulate you to love them, this doesn't mean you have to always avoid doing what they want you to do. It just means that if you do what they want you to do, do it because you choose to, not because they manipulate you to. Do you understand the difference? You can always make that choice. You can always say, I want to love this person. I want to do this. I want to give this. It happens to be what they're trying to force me to do, but that is just a coincidence. <laughs> I am going to choose to love them, to give. What else makes you a grumpy giver? Let's be honest, when you don't have enough. When you don't have enough, it makes you a grumpy giver. This is what I started this this evening with in my own transparency. The reason I get uncomfortable when people start talking about giving is because I feel like a failure. I have, through the course of my life, failed to make an adequate amount of money for my family for much of my life. I've made choices all along the way which feel like right choices, but have never afforded as much money as I feel like my family deserves. I don't like that. I don't like that feeling, and it does make it hard for me to give cheerfully. More than that, it's not that I have a hard time giving. I love when I can give. In fact, I'm very cheerful when I give. but it makes it hard when I can't give. It makes it uncomfortable. I feel like if I were a better person, I'd have more money. That is a myth of our culture, by the way. It's a myth that makes us self-righteous around people who make less than us and makes us unnecessarily ashamed around people who make more than us. But it also makes us not very cheerful givers. (laughs) So there is this thing that says, I don't have enough. For me, it's money. For you, it might be something else. You know, you're called to serve in the church. You're called to give of your time and you're called to give of your energy and you're called to give of your skills and your gifts. And maybe you say, I don't have any gifts. I don't have any skills. Maybe you feel like a failure. Maybe you say, I have not organized my life in such a way that I have enough to give to the church. And so, you don't. Or you give reluctantly, not because you want to hold on to what you have, but because you don't believe what you have is enough. There's a verse in Scripture that says, there is someone who is to blame for your richness or your poverty. And this includes not only your finances, but everything in your life. Do you know who is to blame? God. (laughs) The verse actually says, it is God who makes the rich rich and the poor poor. there's not much you can wiggle around there. Kind of lays it out. I'll tell you what, when I heard that verse, it did not discourage me. It made me cry with relief. (laughs) I thought, it's your fault. Oh, praise God. (laughs) Yeah, we make choices. I understand. But there is a real truth to that. Why am I up here teaching today and not everybody in this room has a teaching gift? Is it because I did something Right? Is it because you did something wrong? It's because if we all had a teaching gift, it would be really noisy and no one would be listening. It's because it is God who apportions the parts of the body as he sees fit. That's good. That's good. There are times I look at people who have gifts that I don't have and I think, oh, I wish I had that gift. Every time something in my house breaks, I wish I had that gift, whatever it was. Because the only thing worse than not having enough money to fix things is not having the ability to fix them when you don't have enough money to fix them. So I have neither. So look upon me in despair. <laughs> yes, there are days I just wish I had something else. You know, I, I, um, I have two jobs. I coach, as I mentioned, I coach pastors and Discipleship is just such a driving passion for me right now. It's so important for the churches to learn how to disciple, to do it better, to find it appropriately, and to make it happen. And I coach pastors about that. And there are many, many days that I say, I don't have enough for this pastor. I never had a church more than 350. My last church, we closed the doors, and they were, and I won't even tell you how small they were. It was me, more than me and my seven kids. I'll tell you that one. I don't know what the number was, but it was like 50 or something. We had a small church. And some days I look and say, what do I have to offer them? What do I have? I don't have enough, but I can't get away from the fact that I feel that's what I have to do. My other job, I work for a a retail store selling high-tech fruit. I'll let you figure out what that is. (laughs) And there are days... It's a great job, and I get to do amazing things, and I get to bless people's lives. I really do. I get to make people happy, and I get to help them when they've they've suffered a huge loss by helping them do something they need to do or get into a device they need to get into. I get to do amazing things, but there are days I do not want to go to work because it doesn't seem to have the impact I want it to have, either financially for my family or for discipleship. So we have this idea of limited resources. The way you turn that from being a, a grumpy giver to a cheerful giver is to recognize something about what God can do with limited resources. Who was here last week? Do you remember what Pastor Matt talked about? He talked about, no. Don't, don't listen to that part of the recording, Pastor Matt. He talked about the loaves and the fishes. See, I wasn't even here, and I know what he talked about. He talked about the loaves and the fishes. What's interesting is it is a miracle that Jesus had enough, but where did it come from? It did come from God, but where did the first loaf and fish come from? A little boy. A little boy who could have said, this is not enough to feed everybody here, and he would have been right. But because he was willing to give of the little he had, God was able to multiply it to something amazing. If he had said, my resources are too limited for the need before me and had not given it, It would be a different story. But he did, and Jesus multiplied it. He can take your limited resources and bless people in amazing ways. There's a gentleman. His name is Edward Kimball. Does anybody recognize that name? Oh, fantastic. I'm so glad nobody knows that name. It's a much better story this way. So Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher. He taught uh, high school, uh, Sunday school in a church. And one day, Edward Kimball, and Edward Kimball didn't feel like he had a lot to offer. He really only taught the Sunday school because all he had was a desire for people to come know the Lord. He was not a teacher. He didn't feel like he had good speaking skills. He was not organized. He just showed up. And one day when he showed up, there was a young lad, a young boy named Dwight who came into his Sunday school, an 18-year-old boy. And this 18-year-old boy came in and he was, at one point, the, Edward was having people read from the Bible, and he could tell. He could just tell because he was so attuned to what was happening that it was about to get to Dwight, and Dwight couldn't find the passage because he'd never opened a Bible before, and it was going to be a huge, embarrassing moment for that young man. And so Edward, without making a big deal of it, nobody even noticed. He opened to the right page, and he slid it over and took the Bible that Dwight was seriously looking for the right place in and just handed him the right page, said nothing. Dwight was so taken by that experience that he thought this the greatest man he had ever known. Well, Dwight was a shoe salesman at the time, young 18-year-old shoe salesman. And so Edward Kimball decided to go visit Dwight at the shoe store. He just thought he needed to go see him. So he went to the shoe store and he thought, I need to talk to him, but he didn't know what to say. And this is how Edward Kimball describes the experience that happened. And listen how small he feels his, his input was. He says, I went up to him, and I put my hand on his shoulder, and as I leaned over, I made my plea, and I feel that really it was a very weak plea. I don't know what the words were I used. I didn't know what to say. I simply told him of Christ's love for him and the love Christ wanted in return. Dwight describes the exact same experience this way. I recollect that my teacher came around behind the counter of the shop I was at work in, and he put his hand upon my shoulder, and he talked to me about Christ and my soul. I had not felt that I had a soul until that moment. I said to myself, this is a strange man. Here is a man who never saw me till lately and he's weeping over my sins and I never shed a tear over them. But I understand it now and I know what it is to have a passion for men's souls and weep over their sins. I don't remember what he said, but I can feel the power of that man's hand on my shoulder tonight. It was not long after that I was brought into the kingdom of God. And that's when Dwight L. Moody begin to preach across the country in two continents. In the process of D.L. Moody preaching across these continents, and one of his meetings was a man named Wilbur Chapman. And as he preached, Wilbur Chapman was gripped by the Lord, and he got saved. And Wilbur Chapman began to preach, and he preached to thousands and thousands of people. And one day, as he was preaching to thousands of people, there was a young baseball player who, on accident, ended up in this revival And his name was Billy Sunday. And he got saved. And he went on to preach great revivals and preach to thousands and thousands of people. And one day as Billy Sunday is preaching, there's a man named Mordecai Ham sitting in his auditorium. And as Billy Sunday preaches the gospel, Mordecai Ham is gripped with the Lord. And he goes on to preach revivals. And as he's preaching revivals one day, a young high schooler named Billy Frank shows up in his auditorium. And as he listens to Mordecai Ham preach, Billy Frank is gripped not only with the gospel, but the need to spread the gospel. And we know Billy Frank as Billy Graham. And Billy Graham has been estimated to have preached to more than two billion people. And all because Edward Kimball gave the little bit that he had. Isn't that amazing? Can God multiply the loaves and the fishes? Of course he can. God loves a cheerful giver because he can do amazing things with a cheerful gift, no matter how small, no matter how little. Limited resources are nothing to God. Revel in what God can do with what you have. Begin to recognize that that little gift that you give, that little tithe that you give to the church, that little time that you give, that little effort that you implant, revel in imagining what God might be doing with it. There's nothing wrong with that. Revel in how it might be impacting the kingdom in amazing ways. This leads to our third aspect, which is we have wrong expectations of impact. Sometimes we're grumpy about giving because we want to see impact in a certain way. Elijah has a great moment with the prophets of Baal. Don't have time for the story, so you'll just have to pretend you know it. Elijah has a great moment with the prophets of Baal, though, where he overturns an entire group of, of cultish leaders it's amazing victory, but what Elijah wanted to happen was for the king's wife to, be re- to repent, and she doesn't. And so Elijah looks at what happens, and he says, I am worthless. Nothing good ever comes for me. And on top of that, there's nobody else even trying. To which God gently reminds him, there are thousands of people in a cave. Just relax. Relax. We want a different kind of impact. Instead, remember the incredible mission we have. I said discipleship is passionate on my heart. Do you know? Please know. I I share this every moment I get, so you're going to hear it right now. Discipleship is your responsibility. It is the church of which you are a member. It's not Pastor Matt's. It's not mine. It's yours. It's ours. Discipleship happens, we're told in Scripture, not from teachers teaching people. Discipleship happens as every one of us gives our loaf and our fish, as each one of us lays a hand on a shoulder, as each one of us gives the very limited amount that we have. And the end result of that discipleship is the fullness of Christ reflected. Reflected. That's the mission you're part of when you give, no matter how much, no matter how little. Can you begin to get excited about that? If you think properly about your gift, it's easy to throw some money in the offering pot. It's easy to give a little bit of service time and not think about it. But can you stop and remind yourself what a great moment you are part of, what a great task you belong to? That's the impact. The bottom line is this. Most of the time when we're grumpy, it's because we have a wrong perception of God and how he gives. See, we want to believe, we hope, we desperately desire it to be true that God gives cheerfully. But we suspect and we fear and at times we're convinced that God gives reluctantly, that he only gives if we compel him by doing the right things, saying the right words, praying enough prayers, being churchy enough and religious enough, getting it right. That's what we think. Do you, can you for a moment rethink about a verse you may have heard before and if you've never heard it, listen extra carefully this moment. We're told in Hebrews that Jesus gladly endured the cross for the joy that was to come do you understand that the joy we're talking about is you it is giving you life it is having a relationship with you it is an intimate walk with you that is the joy that made jesus cheerfully give his life he was not a masochist he did not like pain he endured The cross, cheerfully, gladly, it says, for the joy set before him, which is you. Do you think that that same Jesus, when he sees you in heaven, is going to welcome you with a nod? Do you think he's going to look at you and go, oh, right, you were part of that loophole that I created to let certain people in. You weren't really the one I was aiming at, but yeah, come on in. Honestly, we all think that at times. We all fear that. When you step across those pearly gates... He's not going to stand askance and make you prove you belong to be there. He's not going to look at you and say, do you know how much I suffered for you to be here? He's not going to do any of that. There will be no resentment, no reluctance, no grudging, no compulsion. He will welcome you with open arms. He will rush to you and he will embrace you and he will say, I am so happy you are here. He will call you by name and he will say, I've got a place ready for you. I have been waiting and waiting and waiting for you. It seemed like it was going to be forever. And now we get to be together forever. Come, let's eat, let's party, let's fellowship, let's rejoice. It is not an accident that Jesus uses pictures like feasts and parties and weddings to describe what it will be like. It is not an accident that Scripture tells us for all of eternity, Jesus will lavish us day after day after day with new kindnesses. And if you have a weird notion that Jesus is on our side and he had to persuade the Father, that's just wrong and nonsense. It is said Jesus himself said, do not be afraid, little flock, for the Father has gladly chosen to give you the kingdom. He didn't reluctantly choose to give you the kingdom. We're told in Scripture he shouts over us with shouts of joy. Can you just Hear that and imagine it for a moment? See, I think one thing we often don't do enough as Christians is take time to imagine. C.S. Lewis calls it a sanctified imagination. It's a a thing. Jesus wants to purify our imagination so it dwells in these things rather than in the lower things. What an amazing imagined thing to think about. You're not making it up. It's the promise. When we see Jesus, says John, behold what manner of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. And when we see him, we shall not be ashamed, for we shall see him as he is, and we shall see that we are like him. We're not going to see him and, and fall and be ashamed and say, I wish I was better. We're going to see him, and we're going to say, God, you did an amazing thing. I'm like you. And Jesus is going to say, I know. Isn't it awesome? The parable of the prodigal son is wrongly named because it makes us think the important person in that parable is the prodigal son. It should be called the parable of the enthusiastically forgiving father because that's what it's about. It says that when the prodigal son returned from his wanderings and rebellion, read it carefully, it says that the father saw him from a long way off and ran to meet him. He had no idea why the son was coming back. Could have been coming back to ask for more money. If he saw him from a long way off, it means what? He was waiting for him. Jesus is waiting for you. And he's watching from heaven. And he is so excited. And when we enter, he is going to run to greet us with tears of joy. That's how our God gives. That's a hilarious giver. That's how he runs to us. God loves a cheerful giver. Because when he sees it, he says, ah, that reminds me of me. Because that's who he is. You want to be a cheerful giver? Revel unashamedly, unabashedly, excessively in the grace of God. I do not see any admonition in Scripture to be careful about reveling too much in the grace of God. I see admonitions from grumpy givers to be careful about reveling too much in the grace of God but not from God and dare to imagine I really think if we can focus and revel on that we will be lots more likely to be cheerful givers to revel to want to reflect that grace I've discovered I have this great delight and it's going to Sonic that's not it That would not be a great delight. That would be, eh, it's pretty good for a drink. I don't know about their food. But pulling into Sonic, buying a drink for my family, and you know how when you pull up, you pay, and then you can see the person behind you, how much they're paying? And I look and I go, huh, and I put my card in, and I tell the person at the window, I'm paying for them. And they say, oh, do you know them? And I say, not a clue. They say, who shall I tell paid for them? I say, don't tell them anything. Just tell, well, tell them they don't have to pay, but they don't know me. What I love about it is the fact that there's no recognition. There's no credit. There's no sense that I'm doing this because of what I get out of it. But man, it is so much fun because I can imagine, because there have been those days I have scraped the change underneath the chair just to bring a Coke to my wife. And wouldn't it be great if the person that I just paid for was doing the same thing and when they pull up, they get to use that change for something else? There is a joy in that kind of gracious giving. Let me give you one counterexample. We'll have the team come up and and we'll sing a song and really revel in the grace of God. I want to give you a counterexample only because I want you to understand how important this is to God. Okay. And you may not realize this is a counterexample of exactly what we've been talking about, but it is. In the book of Acts, as the church is just beginning, there's a, there's a wave of generous, cheerful giving that occurs. It seems to be prompted by, among other people, Barnabas, who seems to have been just a great, cheerful giver, who gave because he wanted to. And there's this thing that happens where it says that people started selling their houses and their land and their properties just so they could help out people who didn't have houses or land or property or food. And the idea is that there's no compulsion, there's no guilt There's no sense that people who didn't do it are looked down upon or that the people who needed the help of others are looked down upon. Clearly, not everybody could do it or there'd be no need to do it. But there's a sense that it was just an overflow of we are a family and we want to give. And so they're doing this. And then right in the middle of this amazing reflection of the glory of God, just people joyfully, cheerfully giving without guilt, without compulsion, without obligation. You give, you don't give. You give, I don't give. All good. But right in the middle of this really healthy, perfect balance, we have a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. And what Ananias and Sapphira do is they sell their property and they hold back a portion of it. But they are not rebuked. Hear me. They are not rebuked for holding back a portion of it. The problem is that when they go to give, they pretend that they're giving all of it. And this is what Peter says. (laughs) Like the flames. (laughs) Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? He's not saying the problem is you kept it. The problem is, look, you could have kept all of it. Nobody required you to give any of it. What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. Why is this so important? Why does God make such a big thing of this at this moment? Why not pull them aside quietly and say, Oh, don't do that. Because what Ananias and Sapphira did is they took a beautiful thing of cheerful, voluntary giving and turned it into a mark of spirituality. They made it a mark of who was loved more by God. They defiled the very grace of God in their act of defiling their own graceful giving. Be cheerful givers. And I do believe a passage like this says, if you cannot give cheerfully, if you have not purposed and planned in your heart to give, then don't. Never, ever pretend that you're giving in order to make other people think you're more spiritual. We really need to understand that cheerful giving is a mark of somebody who has recognized how gracious God has been to them, and stop seeing it as a mark of superiority. Amen? Let's pray and have the music team come up. Heavenly Father, we want to revel in the grace of God. We want to revel in how good you are to us. We want to revel that when we see you face to face, you will greet us with joy, with cheerfulness, with love. You will embrace us. You will rush to meet us. It is exciting to us to know that it's exciting to you that we will be with you someday, that we will be face to face. It's exciting to us to know that when we see you face to face, we will be struck with what amazing work you have done in us by your grace. You loved us when we were sinners. You chose us when we were rebellious. You died for us when we were not looking for you because that is who you are because that is the kind of God you are. Lord God, we want to be cheerful givers, not because it makes us more spiritual in the eyes of others. We want to be cheerful givers, not because it's a duty to do. We want to be cheerful givers because we are the children of the world's most cheerful giver. We are children of a God whose very nature is to give everything with joy on our behalf.